Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, the bipartisan density deal is dead. We've got exclusive details on the changes to Nationals' housing policy. We'll take you live to Wellington for the Labour Party Congress as the governing party comes out swinging at its political opponents. It's like the most rubbish Marvel, Marvel comic ever invented. Chris Luxon is Captain Cliché and his sidekick David Seymour is reverse Robin Hood. And the Opportunities Party is focused on a simple strategy in this election. Forget 5%. Winning Islam is all that matters. Well, essentially, you've got a backbench MP from Labour or a backbench MP from National or the former city councillor for the ward. We'll have that interview for you shortly. This morning, though, we can confirm National is backtracking on its support for housing density laws, which made it easier to build three-storey housing across New Zealand cities. Despite previously agreeing to the medium density residential standards, the MDRS, in a bipartisan agreement with Labour, the party will allow councils to opt out. The MDRS were agreed and passed into law in 2021, and at the time, senior figures in the National Party said the laws would help to restore the Kiwi home ownership dream. Because we believe that only by building more houses and building more affordable houses in the places where people want to live will we be able to truly restore the idea of an egalitarian property-owning democracy. House prices and the inability of an entire generation mm. to get uh, to own their own home is something that we have to, across the aisle in Parliament, take extremely seriously. Labour and National are standing together to say an emphatic yes to housing in our backyards. Mm, not anymore. National's new policy will allow for more greenfields development and will require councils to immediately zone land for housing for 30 years of supply. If in government, the party will still support the NPS on urban development, which allows for density and transport corridors, and it'll introduce a $1 billion fund to incentivise councils to build new housing. National Party housing spokesperson Chris Bishop. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. I'm going to start with the politics stuff first. Sure. We've got plenty of time, so I promise I'm going to come to all of the detail in your housing policy. National supported the MDRS. You supported the MDRS. You voted for it in Parliament. When you were sitting here last month, you said you weren't backing away from it. What's changed? We've always said we were open to sensible changes. And actually, what we've come up with, I think, is a far more ambitious package. It says to councils, you can choose how your cities grow. You can either do greenfields or you can do density or you can do, in reality, a mixture of both. And around those rapid transit corridors, uh, you can do six storeys or above. Actually, we're doubling down on that and encouraging mixed-use development around rapid transit corridors, busways and uh, city rail link stations in Auckland, for example. Uh, and so we expect councils to do more density in the cities, but we're just allowing more flexibility and discretion for councils around what they do. So the medium density residential zoning standards under what we're announcing today uh, are still there. We're just saying to councils, you can either choose to use them in part, use them in whole, or opt out. It's over to you as a community and as a council. That's a significant backtrack. It's a flip-flop on your old position. Uh, well, we've always said we're open to sensible changes, and it is true to say that there has been some uh, pushback in relation to those uh, zoning changes. So you've yeah. seen uh, quite a degree of hostility in Auckland, for example. Mm. Christchurch actually refused to implement the law mm. uh, point blank. They Hamilton didn't actually well. follow the law. Yeah, yeah. There, is, there is a degree of pushback, but you've seen other communities where uh, it's quite popular. So, so Wellington, for example, there's parts of Wellington mm. where it's gone down quite well, and we expect that Wellington Council will continue to implement Have you flip-flopped? 
I don't consider it a flip-flop. I think it's well, better... What is a flip-flop? Well, I think it's what, best... What, what would make a flip-flop? Well, if we just got rid of it entirely and said, essentially, we're going to repeal mm. the law completely and wholesale. This is a refinement. It's more flexibility. It's more discretion. You've gone from having a mandate to having councils be allowed to opt out. Yeah, what we said... what The law currently says mm. you have to allow, essentially, the three-by-three three across vast swathes of uh, suburban yep. New Zealand. We're saying to councils, you can pick and choose where. But here's the key point. Councils have to zone for 30 years of growth yeah. right now. So not not none of this sort of uh, pick and mix, here's a bit here, in five years we'll do another little bit, here's in, in 10 years we'll do a bit more. Mm. They have to put 30 years of growth into the market right now to create abundant development opportunities to mm. drive down the cost of land, both at our city fringe, but also inside our cities to uh, make housing more affordable. It's a much more ambitious programme than what the government's talking about. Like I say, we're going to get into all of the details of your policy in a moment. So I just want to look at the events of the week as they played out. Christopher Luxon was speaking at a campaign event in Birkenhead on Mm -hmm. Wednesday and he said, quote, I think we've got the MDRS wrong, foreshadowing your confirmation today. Were those comments planned? Uh, Well, he was asked a direct question from the audience uh, about whether or not we were sticking with the MDRS. Was he planning to say something about it that day? Well, no, I think he got asked a direct question from the audience. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've been working on our housing policy over the last two or three weeks. I think I said on your show a few weeks ago that we were getting close to an announcement You also said we're not backing away from it. Well, that was the position six weeks ago. But uh, Well, that's right. So so did you have any notice that Christopher Luxon was going to say that this week? No, because it was a public meeting. But But that's completely fine. I mean... People, did, did public Nic- meetings did happen. Willis? No, because it was a public meeting. You know, he answered the question directly, mm. and I think actually people appreciate his upfrontness and his honesty so, so uh, and ha- transparency in saying that. So, for how long have you been planning to reverse your position? Uh, we've been talking about our MDRS changes and our wider housing policy for the last couple of months. Uh, and as I said, we've been internally. When, to when, the when did you when did you confirm it though? When do we confirm the policy internally? Yeah. Oh, within uh, the party in the last few days, but so po- after after he made that announcement, you didn't actually have a set position on this. No, but well, policy is an iterative process, right? You work through uh, consultation. I've been out there talking to developers. Sounds like it's an on the hoof process. Not at moment. all. Policy development, by definition, is a developmental process. You consult with stakeholders. You talk to developers. I've been you talking go to, to a public meeting in, in Birkenhead. Urban you change development your mind. community. I've been out there talking to economists. I've been reading the Infrastructure Commission reports. There's a right. lot of work's gone into this. A lot of academic research, a lot of uh, consultation with the people who know what they're talking about to try and come up with a very ambitious uh, package. Policy is not just something, I mean, it might be like that in the Labour Party where uh, famously uh, David Shearer came up with 100,000 Kiwi built homes in the uh, back of the Crown limo mm-hmm. on the way to the conference. And, uh, that's and so, not the way so, we do things in the National Well, well I mean, apparently, apparently you're, you're turning things around pretty quickly. Did, did you give the government any notice? No. Did you reach the bipartisan deal in good faith in 2021? Yes, we did. Wouldn't it have been a good faith move to give the housing minister at least a heads up that you're planning to reverse your support of the MDRS? Well, we are taking our own policy to the election in the same way that the Labor Party will take their own policy well, to the well, election. But, but, but I'll just it's point very out unusual to, you, to have a bipartisan agreement. Though. Yeah, so, so wouldn't yeah, it, well, if well, you two, reached it in good faith, wouldn't it be a good faith move to actually pull out and give them some well, 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 two things on that. Since we reached that agreement, there have been two developments in the last two years that the Labor Party has not talked to us about. One was they gave Auckland Council a one-year extension. Mm. Uh, they wrote, I found out about that 
um, after I read it in the media, so I had no idea about that. Mm. And the other thing is they sent a Crown Observer into Christchurch. Again, there was no consultation uh, with us in relation to that. And just mm. in the last few days, Megan Woods gave a speech, uh, a 20-minute speech, uh, of which 15 minutes of which was basically attacking me uh, and Nicola Willis. So um, any degree mm. of bipartisanship from Megan Woods has certainly went out the window straight away. So we have our own policy. The National Party has its own agenda for government. We're putting our own uh, policies on the table, and if we are elected, we will consider ourselves to have a mandate to implement them, and we will do so. Was Christopher Luxon the leader when the third reading for the MDRS bill came up? Uh, yes, he was. That was in December 2021. I think it was a few days later. Did he understand the implications of the law when he voted for it? Absolutely. We talked about it extensively as a caucus. Uh, in October and November 2021, and when it was going through, there was a lot of debate internally about it. So, so if he understood it, why has he reversed his position? Because we said all the way through um, that we would consider the way the law was being implemented and mm. we would look at sensible changes. By the way, that's also the government position. Megan Woods is on the record saying that they would look uh, at sensible changes. Uh, and so, it's and a that, that remains the change position. To, to remove the mandate. Though. I mean, it's, it's more than just a little tweak or it's, a refinement. It's it is, more, I mean, you are essentially, given councils were so opposed to it, you're essentially saying you're off the hook. It's more flexibility and more discretion. But here's the critical point they have to go for growth. Yes. We're requiring them to put 30 years of housing demand in terms of supply into the market in the short term. Now, they will have to meet that demand uh, yeah. uh, by either doing greenfields or doing density or a mix. Right. And if they don't do it, we will do it for them. Okay. So we're we'll going to legislate... about this just a moment. I've got okay. two more political You're questions and then we're done. Well, no, I think it is, it is very interesting. It's quite telling about how your policy development, if, if it's changed in the last couple of days. ACT was the only party that voted against the MDRS when it came into law. Will this change in position win you more votes? Uh, well, it's about going for more housing supply. I think New Zealanders want to see from the National Party that we are serious about solving housing in this country. Uh, we have a 30-year problem with housing affordability. Mm. They want to see from the National Party that we are serious about it but because it's, it's so many of our... it's done in the context of, our... of an election campaign, though, right? Yeah, but so, so, so clearly of... this is done to design... It, this, this, this decision was made, apparently, at a public meeting with an eye no, to the, the decision... election. No, hang on a minute. I want to correct you there. The decision was not made in a public meeting we have been working on this for a matter of weeks and months. Christopher Luxon was asked a direct question. Mm. Uh, are you sticking with the MDRS? He said, we've got it wrong. Mm. That is true. That is, that is the position we are announcing today. But we are saying there's more discretion and more flexibility, right. but councils have got to go for growth. This is not something just made on the fly. He was asked a direct question. Well, you did he answered just it. tell me that you you've only it. confirmed the details in the last couple well, of days. Well, by definition, you keep refining and working on policy right up okay. until it's announced. Let's talk about the policy. Let's talk about the policy. That's the way Cabinet works too, by the way. So Cabinet works on and refines policy until it's announced. What will be the effect of mandating councils to allow for 30 years of supply? Councils will have to go out there and find where they're going to get that growth. It will mean more greenfields development on our city fringes in Auckland, Wellington, Hamilton, Christchurch, but will also mean more density. We're very interested in more density in our transit corridors, for example, so around train stations, major busways, for example. We actually think councils will, as a result of this policy we're announcing, go up even further around uh, transit corridors. The law currently allows six storeys uh, as a minimum. Mm. They will actually end up doing more. We're interested in mi mixed-use zoning around development corridors, for example. Now, mixed-use zoning is basically a fancy way of saying when you can have residential and commercial side by side. Yeah. So you get apartments above shops, little um, bars and boutiques and things like that. Um, that's particularly effective around rapid transit. 
Uh, and we want to use things like value capture instruments mm. to make sure that when, the, when there is rezoning, uh, central government or local government captures some of the value of that. You think about Crossrail, for example, in uh, the United Kingdom, which is the new Elizabeth line in right. London. About 40% of, of that was actually paid for by, by value capture instruments. So it's a, this is a, a policy that will make councils go for growth. And this is the key point. If they don't, central government, as in mm. a national government, will rezone that land for them. This is the problem at the moment, right? Uh, land at the edge of our city, mm. uh, because of the line that we draw around mm. our cities, the, a ring essentially, mm. is far more valuable inside the line than land on the outside of the line. So Productivity Commission, Infrastructure Commission's looked at this. Land inside the boundary in Auckland is uh, $1,300 a square metre more than land outside the line. Mm. That is completely nuts. $600,000 is added to the average section price uh, in, on the Auckland city fringe. That suffuses its way through the rest of the market and mm. drives up property prices throughout the rest of the Auckland price. That's why Auckland house prices are a million dollars on average in Auckland. We are going to smash that. We are going to implement a policy that abolishes the metropolitan urban limit in Auckland, which, by the way, Phil Twyford said he would do in 2017. Will it and it was in the speech from the throne, and Jacinda Ardern never did it. So will we are it lead, implementing it. Will it lead to more sprawl? It will lead to more sprawl, but it will lead to more affordable house prices. It will lead to more density, and it will lead to more sprawl, but it will lead to more affordable house prices, and that is worth it. Yeah. Because so many of the social problems in this country are caused by unaffordable housing. A million dollars. Young Kiwi, the fifth biggest bank in this country yeah. is the bank of mum and dad. Young Kiwis cannot get on the property ladder because they are, they are just completely priced out of the market. We have poverty in this country caused by housing. Yeah. We have inequality no, caused by housing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everyone I, agrees no, it's a terrible no. problem, but no one ever does anything about it. That's well, the problem. Well, everyone well, says they they'll do something. the NDRS. No, <laughs> everyone says they'll do something about it, and they never do. But so, we've got the political courage to get in there and smash uh, these limits that are artificially holding back development. OK, so, so you acknowledge, though, that it will lead to more sprawl if, yes, we, if we introduce it. it will, but it'll so, be worth it. So, OK, let's talk about the infrastructure costs yep. if, if we are building on the, on the, around the fringes of our biggest cities. So in 2017, Auckland Council estimated the average infrastructure cost of Greenfield's developments was $146,000 mm -hmm. a house. Yep. What would it be now? Probably a little bit more than that, but the, that's but the, an extraordinary sum. Yes, per it is. house. But when you when you flood the market with abundant development opportunities, and we're setting in place a rule that says new greenfields housing has to be funded by the beneficiaries of that housing. So, in other words, the people who move into that so housing have to pay. you want to buy affordable housing? You're going to the edges of the city, yep. and you're going to maybe pay 180,000. $200,000 just for the infrastructure for the house, just for the pipes and the roads. That will be done as a targeted rate or a targeted levy But that's on hardly that. making it more affordable, is it? Well, no, it does, because it gets imputed into the land price, which drives the land price down, which makes the housing more affordable. And so over 30 years, people who move into those properties will pay off a targeted rate. This is not... This is relatively new, but it has mm. been done. So Mill Day, for example, in north of Auckland, uh, has trialled this model. It's worked really well there. We want to make it a lot easier and cut the red tape to use this new tool called the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Vehicle uh, to be used mm. in many more greenfields around uh, the country. Tauranga is using it right now. Wellington's looking at it, but there's a lot of red tape around it. We're going to make it a lot easier. For, we keep on using this term greenfields. I'm aware that there might be some people watching this who don't actually understand what greenfields are. They are essentially farmland, right? Yeah, not always, but, but typically, yes. For, for the most part. Yep. Some of the land that you will allow building on under yes. your new policy is literally productive 
farmland, right? Mm. Under the NPS uh, of highly productive land, the yep. national policy statement, yep. national is going to open it up so that land use under class three, yes. capability class three, which yep. is productive farmland, yes. is going to be opened up for housing. Well, it will be the choice of the landowner. Yep. So, so what the NPS does is say that on... Uh, you can't turn this productive land into houses. Yeah, on class one, two and three, it doesn't say you can't, but it makes it very, yep. very difficult. We're saying protect class one, that's your gold dust mm. soils, protect class two, that's very, very, very high quality. Class three, which is the next 10%, class one's about 1%, mm. class two's about 4%, class three's the next 10%. That's a bit more mixed. We're saying get rid of that out of the highly productive land restrictions, allow it to be converted to housing. We're not confiscating it, we're not saying no, no, no. it has to be, it'll just be over to the landowner. And the reason we're doing that is because Treasury and the experts who've looked at that told the government, if you have a very, very um, mm. restrictive NPS on highly productive land, you will compromise housing affordability. I think housing affordability is the most pressing issue facing New Zealand and we've got to deal with it, so that's why we're making those changes. Do you accept that compared to many more central suburbs, greenfields are generally a greater distance from central cities. Yes, of course. So how do people get into town? Well, we're also going to change the uh, infrastructure funding tools around central government as well. So, for example, you take um, a place like Tauranga, for example, State Highway 29, uh, which is a new road from Tauranga through to Hamilton. Mm. Uh, there is land, abundant land available for housing over there, uh, and a lot of developers keen to develop it. Tauranga wants to do it, They want, but to unlock that land they need State Highway 29 to be right. built. 50,000 new homes outside Tauranga. Tauranga has a uh, housing affordability problem almost as bad as mm. Auckland. We're saying a couple of things. Firstly, um, you, there'll be value capture tools for councils to be able to use. And then secondly, central government will make um, housing growth an explicit goal of the National Land Transport uh, Fund, which means that the transport agency will be have to look favourably upon new projects like State Highway like uh, 29, for example. Roads, but also public transport. It but goes I mean, for both. If, you, if, you, if indeed you're gonna, the, these policies are going to lead to more sprawl, which you acknowledge, um, you are going to need a massive investment to public transport if indeed we're to meet our, our, our climate reduction target. So inside our cities, right, um, things like the Eastern Busway, things mm. like potentially the Northwestern Busway in the future, the City Rail Link, uh, those projects are extremely important and that's what our funding reprioritisation will allow for. The point is that you're building for. the new housing outside of the cities, effectively. Well, it'll be, a, as I say, it'll be a mixture of both. So in our cities, yeah. yep, we need high quality public transport and projects like the City Rail Link and things like that. In our regions and in our cities around and around the edges of our cities, yep, yeah. we're going to need more roads. And I make no apology for that. State Highway 29 outside Tauranga unlocks 50,000 houses, 30,000 new jobs. Actually, what we're saying under this new policy mm. is that the landowners who benefit from that new state highway should pay for that state highway in part. These are tools that are, are used overseas mm. that aren't used in New Zealand right now. Here's, here's what happens at the moment. Government builds a new state highway, unlocks a whole bunch of land. Landowners sit there and go, all of a sudden their land prices increase yeah. in value because the government, yeah. taxpayers, have built a new state highway. Our position is, yep, you get the value from it through public money, you're getting private gain, we're going to take some of your gain to help pay for the road. But you're describing a future whereby the only way to achieve the Kiwi home ownership dream for many New Zealanders is going to be living further and further no, and further out. completely wrong. We're describing a future in which there is choice. At the moment, there is no choice for people. Well, the only choice is to live in cold, mouldy, 
unaffordable homes, a million dollars in Auckland, 10 times the average household income the, in Auckland, 25,000 families the on the wait list, children the, living in cars and tents choice, right around the country. The choice is to keep the MDRS. It's, to stick, with is, your, it's to stick with your conviction. Our it's, policy is much more ambitious than the MDRS. Well, our policy floods the market with development opportunities and allows for public if, transport. If the MDRS was enforced, do you believe it would create greater housing density in our biggest cities than your policy? Yeah. No, our policy will create more density than, than, what, than what the MDRS does because it allows for rapid it allows for intense intensification around rapid transit corridors. It means that councils will, will essentially have to do some targeted density in places where it makes sense. It gives them more choice and discretion about where they do it. The and MDRS it, is a one size fits all. the development all. of Greenfield. The MDRS is a one size fits all approach. Ours is more targeted in terms of discretion and flexibility, but also we bring the Greenfield's growth on as well. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask um, uh, about climate change because in your sure. policy document you talk about uh, yeah. the climate liability. You say that it is worsened by uncertainty and delays in housing policy in New Zealand. So economists estimate New Zealand has a housing shortage of fifty to one hundred thousand houses. It's it, far worse than that. Okay. Yeah. How many would you say it is? Well, certainly more than 100,000. I mean, it's impo impossible to put an up. exact just, number just, just on it. Just for the sake of but, it, yeah. but, I mean, it's ridiculous. You see sometimes people come out and say, oh, we'll end, up, we'll end our housing shortage soon. We'll end our housing shortage when people don't live in motels. If 100,000 houses are built in greenfields versus 100,000 in townhouses under the MDRS, including the transport and infrastructure impacts, what option of those would lead to the greatest emissions? It, there's no doubt that um, density is the best for climate. Absolutely no doubt about that. People who live in inner city Auckland, inner city Wellington, uh, consume fewer carbon emissions than mm. people on the fringes of our cities. But I tell you what's more important is housing affordability. Mm. That is absolutely imperative for New Zealand. So many of our problems are caused by that, and I'm prioritising that over essentially a utopia of everyone living inside our cities. We need housing choice mm. and we need housing affordability. Do you want to see house prices come down further? I want to see sustained moderation over time oh, as, in, as incomes rise. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it means that over time we've, we've got to get to a situation where the what, average what? house in Auckland is not 10 times average household income. What should income. it be? Well, in a, if, you, if, you, if you look at the experts and you go to a place like Texas or Houston, for example, yep. Average household income to the median multiple, as mm. they call it, is four, three to three and a half to four to one. Right. How long is it going to take to get there? It'll take a while, but that's that's the extent of the problem. So, so basically, got. you don't want house prices to increase for, I mean, potentially decades off the top of my head. I want sustained moderation in house prices, and I want income growth as well. Yeah. So that. But so if that we allow for in income growth at say three or four percent a year, which is the sort of historic level, then then we are literally going to be waiting decades until we reach that four to one ratio. Well, I don't think it will take that long, but we mm. we do we can't have a house price crash that mm. would be disastrous in terms of financial stability. But we have to put in place these policies so that New Zealanders see some hope. Right. That young Kiwis, people in their twenties and thirties sitting out there watching this programme, possibly not because they're hungover, but, may, but maybe later on on demand. Oh, they, they definitely and, watch. Yeah, yeah. OK. Uh, they see some hope. And what I'm saying to them today, and I, and I hope they hear me yeah. directly, I'm saying to them, National cares about you and your dreams and your aspirations, and we are here for you, and we will get in there. There is one line, one done. thing we haven't talked about properly, which yep. is the, the incentive program that you're yep. going to introduce. So councils will, will have access to a billion-dollar fund yes. to incentivise more dense housing, or, or not dense housing, new housing. Yep. Explain how it works. Billion-dollar fund. The problem at the moment is that councils get all the costs of new mm. development. They don't share any of the benefits. Central mm. government gets it all through GST and things like mm. that. We're saying we're putting a billion dollar fund available so that 
when councils go above their long-term average for house, uh, house building over the last five years. For every house above that, they get $25,000. In practical terms, Auckland last year would have received $152 million in money from central government mm-hmm. to the council, uh, which they can spend on whatever they like. It's about changing the incentives in our in our local government ecosystem right. so that local government doesn't see housing growth as a cost. They actually see it as something to be welcomed. But there it's is really one important. massive incentive. It's the elephant in the room here, mm. and it's rate pays. It's people who don't want to see more dense housing in their backyards, mm. the same people who were at that Birkenhead meeting with Christopher Luxon this week, who don't want to see townhouses popping up in their neighbourhoods. How will you make councils follow these recommendations or follow these laws when they've basically given a middle finger to the MDRS as it stands mm. and you by your own admission say that councils have resisted for the last yeah. three decades any efforts around density? I think it's a balanced package. Firstly we're saying to the council by law you have to zone immediately for 30 years of growth. They're not going to be very keen on that. Uh, if they don't do it we'll do it for them so we can do that in central government and we will. But the quid pro quo is that we're also saying we're going to help you with the infrastructure Mm. tools so that you can do it off your balance sheet, which is what they worry about. We're also saying there's free money available, a billion dollar pot of money, uh, if you go for growth. Mm. And, you know, the councillors I've talked to, that's that's been pretty favourable for them, been pretty uh, desirable. National is reintroducing interest deductibility laws. Mm -hmm. You would cut the Bright Line test back from 10 years to two years. Mm You would incentivise Greenfields developments instead of mandating housing density. By 2017, when Labor came into government, even National acknowledged, after the John Key and Bill English years, that there was a housing crisis. Houses were too few. They were too expensive. Critics will look at this policy and say, you're going back to the future, that these are almost exactly the same settings as they were when you were last in government. Why will this be any different? It's completely untrue. Actually, uh, what we're proposing is a radically ambitious plan to sort housing out once and for all in New Zealand. Actually, Phil Twyford campaigned on smashing the metropolitan urban limit. Phil Twyford campaigned on uh, infrastructure funding tools that we that they have not had the courage mm. to implement. Some of Twyford's what Phil Twyford was talking about was good. Yeah. But he hasn't done it. They haven't done it. Jacinda Ardern talked about it. Like so many things with Jacinda Ardern, she talked about it and never actually did it. This is a radically ambitious plan to sort housing. Look, Jack, I'm 39. I became an MP when I was 31. I was a backbencher uh, for the last three years of the last national government. I acknowledge that housing got out of control under the last national government, but here's the thing, it's worse now. Four times as many children living in motels, four times as many kids living in cars uh, and tents. A social housing wait list that is five times worse than it was when national left office. Labor came to power in 2017 saying they had all the answers. They have utterly failed. And well, what we're saying is that we have the ideas and the plans and the solutions to take New Zealand forward. Thank you very much for sharing your policy with us this morning. Look forward to the debate. National's housing spokesperson, Chris Bishop, coming up on Q&A. She started as a flight attendant and worked her way up to become CEO of our biggest airport. We asked the boss of Auckland Airport how changes to landing fees next month might impact ticket prices. And is building a new airport terminal in the best interests of a low-carbon future? Oh, Maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. Labor has kicked off its election campaign in earnest at the annual Labor Party Congress. MPs and party supporters have been gathering in Wellington and used the first day of the Congress yesterday to confirm Labor is still committed to keeping the age of superannuation at 65, provided contributions are made to New Zealand's super fund. One News senior political reporter, Benedict Collins, has been covering the Congress for us and joins us now live. Kia ora, Benedict. It's election year. We have a new Prime Minister. So how does this Congress compare to years past? 
Yeah, good morning. Well, yeah, I mean, congresses are a bit different to your normal annual conference. You know, the parties, they're not focusing in on policy. Or, you know, they're not really debating those kind of issues um, in, in a congress. It's more around geeing up their members, you know, looking forward to the election, really trying to get them, you know, starting to think about pushing into campaign mode. I guess a big difference for Labour, obviously, as you kind of uh, mentioned there, you know, an entirely new leadership team. Jacinda Ardern, she's well gone. Grant Robertson's gone as deputy. Now we've got Chris Hipkins there as Prime Minister and Deputy is Carmel Cepoloni. So, you know, they were sort of addressing a big Labour Party conference like this for the first time. Mm. I think back to 2020 and Jacinda Ardern promised a relentlessly positive campaign. From what you saw yesterday, has that position changed? I don't know if it's changed so much. I can remember talking to you from the annual conference last year and they really were honing in on uh, Christopher Luxon there, really attacking him. And that really continued yesterday. Look, for someone who quite likes a political burn, it was a thoroughly enjoyable day. With uh, Calvin, Calvin Davis there, really honing in on the Act Party, kind of warning everyone about what might go, you know, if, if a national and Act um, government was elected, you know, calling them that coalition of cuts. And then we had uh, Grant Robertson come in. Uh, he had some great burns. He said the National Party looked like it had put every policy, every bad policy it ever had into chat GPT. Uh, and at the other end, spat out was Christopher Luxon, making, you know, lots of jokes about um, their use of AI recently, questioning whether uh, Christopher Luxon did indeed have five or six fingers like mm. they do in uh, AI. So, yeah, they, they were really having a, a field day there. Um, there was a policy announcement of sorts. Let's have a very quick listen to Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni. Today, Labour is drawing a line in the sand. Unlike National Enact, today I am confirming that we will not be lifting the age of eligibility for New Zealand superannuation. That's Carmel Sepuloni. So Labour has announced that it's sticking with its policy of keeping super at the age of 65. How did that go down? Well, I think we heard the cheers there. Uh, the, the, the audience seemed uh, really happy. Well, no surprises that, I mean, the Labour Party never suggested they were going to get rid of this policy. They also confirmed, you know, they'd be keeping that winter energy payment in place um, and that they'd be continuing, mm. you know, those $500 annual contributions to KiwiSaver and keeping those payments going uh, to superannuation as well. So no surprises there. But what it did allow them to do was start to, you know, really attack um, national enact over the, the possible lift of that from 65 up to 67. So they started a fight there, you know, and they're, mm. and they're kind of saying to people, warning people, look, this is, you know, a future under national act. People are going to be having to work to 67. As part of uh, one user's coverage yesterday, I actually popped out to the um, Hutt Valley and interviewed the chief executive of Age Concern, and she was telling us, look, you know, yeah. a lot of people, particularly manual jobs, they're, they're getting to 65 barely as it is, you know, their, their bodies are in not good shape. Pushing yeah. it up to 67, they think that's, you know, too tough. So that was kind of interesting. I also enjoyed, uh, oh, you just had him on there, but um, Chris Bishop uh, yesterday, you know, he, he, he came down to Parliament and he was saying how disappointed he was that uh, the government, uh, the Labour Party was focused on attacking, you know, these political attacks on National and, and Christopher Luxon instead of focusing on, on the real issues. So, you know, I think Labour, Labour kind of got what they wanted there, really, you know, kind of, uh, putting the heat on national. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Benedict. Really appreciate your time. There's one new senior political reporter, Benedict Collins. He's back at the Congress this afternoon when it kicks off again. And, of course, we are expecting an address and a policy from Prime Minister Chris Hipkins when he appears at the Congress. After the break on Q&A, at the start of 2020, almost 30 airlines were operating out of Auckland Airport when the world turned upside down. We asked the airport's boss to assess the state of our tourism recovery.
For the first time in five years, Auckland Airport is about to increase its landing fees, which could mean consumers see the price of air tickets increase. For Auckland Airport's new boss, it is an exciting phase in the airport's development, as it plans a new multi-billion dollar development and domestic terminal. Carrie Hudihanganui has an amazing story. After growing up in Illinois, she started her career in aviation as a flight attendant. She studied while flying and climbed the ranks at Air New Zealand before taking over as CEO of our biggest airport last year. Yeah, interesting that, wasn't it? It actually started, it grew up in a small town uh, Midwest United States, um, and it was actually my last year of high school. Uh, an AFS, or exchange student, Rhonda from Rotorua, uh, came to my high school, we became great mates, and conjured up a plan that me coming to New Zealand for the summer was a, a great idea before going back to university. Um, and I remember, actually, vividly, it was my first international trip flying into New Zealand, flying into Auckland Airport, um, super excited. Her dad uh, collected me from the airport, and as we were heading south, he detoured to field days, uh, thrust some red band gumboots into my hand, and that was my introduction to New Zealand. And to be fair, loved it. Uh, but it was very different than just outside Chicago and in, in Illinois. Um, shortly thereafter, actually, I met a lovely local chap uh, in Rotorua, and, and some 34 years later, I'm, I'm still here. And, and, and part of that, as far as the connection to, to the airport, is um, I actually was studying. Uh, I did eventually go to university here in New Zealand, but I couldn't take papers as quickly as I wanted to because I was working full time. I got used to earning earning money and didn't want to give that up. Um, and so going flying allowed me to actually fast track my degree. I could chuck my books in my bag and while I was in LA study and, and get that done. So that's what got me into to aviation. And, and once I'd finished my study, I actually loved, loved the industry. No two days are the same. Uh, and so that's really what kind of blossomed a career with Air New Zealand and, and then ultimately the airport. Give us the current picture then. Compared to pre-pandemic, how's business? Yeah, well, I mean, if I go back to February 22 when I started in the role, um, the terminal was largely empty. Um, we'd just come out of the 107-day lockdown or whatever it was for Auckland region. Domestic flights were just starting uh, to ramp up. International was just a handful of flights. Stores were shut. So very somber at that point in time. Fifteen months later, actually, international capacity is at 91% of what it was pre-COVID. Domestic is 89. Um, we've seen great announcement like Delta, United, American, all flying from LA later this year. China borders uh, restrictions have lifted. We're seeing that capacity come back very quickly. In June, there'll be 27 flights a week. And just to give that context, it was between 35 and 45 during summer and winter seasons right. below. So that's been an extraordinarily quick recovery uh, out of out of that region. So the demand seems to be holding and remaining strong. Obviously immigration settings have changed recently and we're seeing some movement on that front but I wondered about the tourism industry as the front door to New Zealand for so many of our international tourists. What's your assessment of how that industry is recovering? Listen, I think it, it's been a tough 12 months. Partly, we're seeing the capacity and demand come back, which is fantastic. I think it's come back faster than any of us anticipated. And so with that, you've had some of the growing pains that come with it. And it's not unique to New Zealand. Globally, you've heard about tourism and aviation, labor shortages. Those labor shortages translate into the ecosystem and kind of the ripple effects. And our loca geographic location means that quite often we're the downstream receiver of some of those challenges out of the likes of North America otherwise. Uh, but tourism more broadly, again, working through the labour challenges, starting to get things 
humming again, but we still have a way to go uh, in terms of you'll, you'll hear operators talking about getting enough staff to open seven days a week mm. uh, and otherwise, but it is improving month to month and, and again we're seeing through uh, Tourism New Zealand and, and, and our partners that um, the growth continues, but uh, I'd say it's another six to twelve months, I would guess, before we get back to um, the rhythm that we probably were in previously. Right, okay, so you've talked about some of the, the problems with labour shortages there, but, but just from a demand perspective, you reckon we could be a year away from getting back to something akin to pre-pandemic services? Yeah, we, we've said late 24, 25, and that's just off the back of uh, that last 10% um, is can be quite hard to achieve, and that might rely on airlines, um, aircraft, getting back the number of assets they had before labour force and otherwise, but um, would love to think that it might come back a little bit faster than that, but that's what, what we're forecasting at the moment. The labour shortages, you say, have been affecting airport operations. There have been some criticism about the baggage delays, particularly in the international airport, and you touched on this a moment ago. What responsibility does the airport bear for those delays? Well, listen, we're an ecosystem, and so it's one of those things, if you drop the, the pebble, you know, it ripples across. I consider us the conductor of the orchestra. So the things that we control, and even the things that we don't, we need to be wrapping our arms around that and helping to influence and, and support that. If you make reference to things like baggage challenges, you know, uh, last quarter of last year, that was pretty tough. You had storms in the U.S., um, you had other issues that were coming through, and then that would mean that actually those bags, if they didn't get loaded in L.A., that means they didn't arrive in Auckland until a week later, uh, and so there was a backlog that, that everybody was, was working really hard to clear. I am really pleased that for the last two or three months, mishandled bags, as we call them, are very much back to historic norms, um, very much have gotten on top of that, that issue, and, and we seem to have, as an ecosystem, been able to address that. It doesn't mean, however, if there's another significant upheaval in the likes of the US that you don't see that, but I think the system is now better equipped uh, to work through those at a faster pace. So really positive in, in that space that we've Have we seen the last of the racks in the international arrivals area? I hope so. That we is the plan. <laughs> yeah. um, what about the security lines in the in the domestic terminal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've been working really hard with the border agency partners on that. We've put in an additional lane, and so that is monitoring. And, and what we found, whether it be outbound or actually inbound, and inbound's not security, that is biosecurity and other elements, is that again, just by getting dedicated focus on queue management, on timing, if flights are early or late or otherwise, that um, we are again getting that to the point that we want it to be. It hasn't been, to be honest, Jack, what, what I want the service levels to be and what I expect them to be, um, but we are focused and making forward progress, um, and I am committed that we, we will get those both on arrivals and departures. The airport is planning a significant redevelopment. A new domestic terminal and infrastructure upgrades that you estimate will cost just under $4 billion. Why do we need it? Oh, well, we have the existing domestic terminal, um, 57 years old, and uh, has served Auckland uh, incredibly well. But if you roll back to 2019 numbers, really was at capacity, um, coming to the end of its useful life. And so it's been a conversation that kicked off. I remember when I was airline side, uh, 2012, we started talking about the domestic terminal replacement. So it's been a long time coming, but the view to say, how do we project for forward growth efficiency, um, things like most uh, comparative airports have um, under one roof, the idea that you have a five-minute 
inside walk from your domestic to international connection as opposed to our 10 to 15 minute kind of rain, hail, shine proposition. But we need to set ourselves up that we have a resilient and fit for purpose uh, terminal as we go into the future. A $4 billion upgrade, how will you fund it and to what extent will passengers end up footing the bill? Yeah, great question. And two things there. One as far as just capital expenditure and, and how we fund that. Ultimately, whether that's through borrowings or through equity, comes down to things such as the pace of the delivery, the timing, the regulatory returns, the economic environment, interest rates, etc. So we'll continue to mon monitor that. That's a five to six year build. <clears throat> In terms of pricing or charging, um, so airport charges to airlines, that's under the Commerce Commission, so there's a regulated model that we mm. follow as part of that. Um, but prices will increase. We have a, a nearly 67, uh, sorry, 60 year asset that's largely depreciated uh, and the basis of the weighted average cost of capital is how those charges are calculated. So if you're going to build a new terminal, mm. obviously that's going to have different elements to that. From an airline's perspective, they have expressed concern around a price increase and in the current challenging environment we're all facing, I, I, I have empathy for that. But probably context important, it's starting from a really low base. So uh, domestic airport charges at Auckland are 40 to 50 percent less mm. than comparable airports in New Zealand, Australia and otherwise. So you're starting from a low base. And then airport charges make up 3 to 4 percent of a ticket price. Right. So as far as you know, your question of how much will that be passed on to customers, it, it is a relatively small amount and, and ultimately for airlines how much they pass on to that is, is really a decision for them. I think just for our, for our viewers it might be useful to break this down because at the moment I know the airport has been going through the process whereby it reviews its landing fees and, and the airlines consider how much of those will be passed on to consumers. So, so you're about to publish those numbers publicly. Will those numbers include an allowance for construction or do we wait until the new ter terminal and infrastructure upgrades are completed? Um, yeah, so for clarity, as far as what gets included in the prices, it is what has been, we say, commissioned or in use. Right. So if you take the domestic uh, terminal replacement or the integrated terminal, that's a five to six year build, so 2028-29. That won't be in the pricing charges that we are publishing shortly because it won't be in use until 28-29, which is when airlines will start to pay. What will be in use, however, is that over the last five years, and we set prices every five years under the Commerce Commission model, is that there have been assets that have been added. So roading, utilities, new apron stands for aircraft. So those are the things that go into any pricing consideration. But the terminal itself, that'll be a 28-29. So when it comes to the infrastructure upgrade, over the past 20 years, Auckland Airport has paid out roughly $3 billion in dividends to shareholders. What do you say to critics who say those dividend payments have been excessive and, and that effectively shareholders have sweated the asset? They should be using some of those dividends to fund the upgrades as opposed to putting it back onto passengers. I think twofold, if you look over the last 10 years for aeronautical um, investment, there's been 1.5 billion that's been invested in aeronautical in the last 10 years. So um, to say we haven't been investing would, would be misleading. Uh, and that's been larger than it has been for investment in non-aeronautical. Mm. There is a balance always in terms of um, shareholders uh, as, as well as capital investments as, as they need to be made. And certainly as, as we go forward in this next build process, things like um, reviewing dividend policy is something that we announced at, at, at our interim results that the board's reviewing that in June. And so we'll be announcing that before 
uh, our full year results in regards to the views of dividend policy going forward. Domestic airfares are really expensive at the moment. I checked the CPI, uh, they've gone up 40% since the same period in 2019. 40%. Um, listen, I think there is, particularly those lead-in fares. You know, you, you have those fares that are, are the the saver deals that if you book early um, and you can't change them, et cetera, right through to then the fully flexible fares. So there will be elements through there. Generally, what my experience is that airlines tend to use all of those fare prices um, to ebb and flow to manage so that they can continue to offer those lead-in fares, those smart saver fares for customers to access. I would expect they continue to do that. They, they do that for all costs that come their way. So airport charges shouldn't be any different than any other cost in, in terms of how they manage that so that they are providing the variety and options across those those lead-in fares right through to the, the full fares. Do you think expanded passenger services and expanded capacity is in the interests of a low-carbon future? Great question, and one that we spend a lot of time talking about. And I'll split it in, in to two if I could, and the first being in regards to a low-carbon future. Um, and if we could park international for a moment, because I think that's got different attributes. But domestically, is ripe for low-carbon technology. You've got electric, hydrogen, hybrid, sustainable aviation fuel. So New Zealand, actually, in our geographic size, makes that a really viable proposition. And so whether you've got a jet fuel-based aircraft or an electric aircraft, you still need a place for the passengers to go, to check in, yeah. to clean, etc. So from that perspective domestically, again, we need to be building for the future absolutely with low carbon as part of that and, and investing in the technology, sustainable aviation aotearoa that we're part of, etc. Then I think in the international space, far more complex because electric, uh, the technology is not indicating that's on the slate anytime soon. So that means like things like sustainable aviation fuel become real. And so how do we, we need to work together around regulations, uh, around the investment, around the technology for that. Um, and then it's that, that managing around uh, New Zealand's geographic location. Mm. It's actually tourism and trade, 80% of freight comes in the belly hold of a passenger aircraft. So for our geographic location, we, we can't disconnect from the world. So that means we're going to have to lean in heavily in regards to technology for low emissions and how we do that. Mm. But completely acknowledge international long haul is the really hard nut to crack. Yeah. Did you see France this week? Banned some short haul flights within the country for, for emissions considerations. Do you think there are any routes in New Zealand that may not be justifiable in the future because of concerns around climate change? I think it's interesting. I mean, you look in Europe, you have viable alternatives. You have rail. You have other elements that, that make those alternatives easier. New Zealand doesn't have the luxury of that, and so that means then you're forcing people into cars potentially, so I mean, you have the, the relative debates of, of what's better in that space. But, but yes, ultimately, in places like France, you can see why they're doing it, because there is an alternative. Is light rail, as proposed, good for Auckland? Um, listen, Auckland Airport has always positioned that modal shift is important. If you look to say you have to have modal shift for us to achieve our objectives, whether that's just the growth of Auckland, and then certainly from a sustainability perspective. Um, I guess ultimately a question for government is, is for the investment, is, is that the priority for them uh, or not? But I'm an advocate. We, we do need modal ship to mass rapid transit. Right. 
Uh, and finally, there has been a lot of debate in Auckland as to whether or not Auckland Council should be selling some of its shareholding in Auckland Airport. I know you are limited in what you can say on that front, but do you have any thoughts on how the debate has been held? Auckland Airport is a strategic asset. It's the front door to New Zealand, so you are going to have local ratepayers that are going to have really strong views on that they have a vested interest, which I personally think is a really good thing that people care and have a view. Uh, I think it's played out that, you, however, you don't have alignment or consensus on that, and I don't think you were ever going to get that. So, yeah, I think Mayor Brown and the council have some pretty big decisions ahead of them to make. It's Auckland Airport CEO Carrie Hudihanganui. If you want to contact the Q&A team, you know what to do. Coming up on the programme, we are looking at the race for Islam. In the last election, National lost the seat for the first time in MMP history. Jerry Brownlee isn't standing this year, but can National win it back? Kia welcome back. After a shock result in the Islam electorate last election when the previously solidly national seat fell to Labour, a lot of attention will be given to the red and blue battle for that seat in this election. But as Fina Owen explains, there is a local identity in the mix backing himself to wrestle the seats in the two main contenders. Islam electorate, you'll find yourself landing right in it if you travel to Christchurch by plane. It's the country's second biggest airport and a big employer in the electorate in our second biggest city. Here's a trio who aren't interested in second place, incumbent Islam MP Labour's Sarah Pallett, Nationals Dr Hamish Campbell and Raf Manjay for top are considered the main contenders to win in October. Islam includes suburbs like Merivale, Fendleton, Rickerton and Burnside and is packed with variety. We've got a lot of schools here, we've obviously got the university. A lot of kind of rural land. We have a lot of industrial manufacturing here as well. We've got a few quarries, we've got a rhino wildlife park. Yes, Islam is the only electorate to have a lion encounter. But the electorate's political encounters have made history. Back in 1996, when the electorate was formed, National's Jerry Brownlee took the seat and held the blue stronghold until 2020, when in a huge upset for National, he lost the seat by 3,500 votes to Labour, to the so-called red wave. I don't think it's unfair to say that, you know, we did have a significant benefit from what, what's called the red wave, but I also think that um, the, island, the, the island electorate, the people of Ireland were ready for a change. No, uh, uh. Hang on. At Rickerton House, we join Islam's MP Sarah Pallett on a training walk with Duke, a puppy who's on a guide dog programme. Duke even accompanies the member for Islam to Parliament. So he, he sits in your office as well? Yeah, so he, he's, and he's yep. got a, a safe space there, he's got a crate there, um, and it's um, lots of food and... Plenty but not, of in the not in the debating Not chamber. at the moment, no. In Parliament, Sarah Pallett sits on the Health Select Committee. Her midwifery background has offered up some handy puns. Labour is hard work, but then you get a delivery. <laughs> Over in Avonhead, a couple of long-time national voters tell us they've switched allegiances, sort of. We lost Jerry a while ago, and the Sarah Pallet has been a non-existent. They have some tactical advice for Island voters. Party vote national and vote for Raf as uh, their electorate MP. It's a win-win. Mm -hmm. 
This morning, top leader Raf Manji is at his regular haunt with members of Young Top and Older Top. In 2017, the former Christchurch City Councillor ran as an independent MP for Islam, coming in second. But will voters give him the top job this time? Well, essentially, you've got a backbench MP from Labour or a backbench MP from National or the former city councillor for the ward um, who knows the issues. That's the choice. So I think I'm going to be a strong voice for Islam and for Christchurch. And that's, I think, really what matters to the people here. Police are investigating after eight Christchurch businesses were targeted in an early morning crime spree. does matter to the people here? Number one is crime. It's the ram raiding, really, that concerns me. And these young folk, you know, just out of control. The cost of living that's really concerning people at the moment and the interest rates. Dr Hamish Campbell, Nationals candidate, concurs that island voters are concerned about those issues and health care. He says he should know because he's talked to a lot of them. I've heard in Wellington that you are National's door knocker supreme, as candidates go, is that right? Yes, yeah, I've knocked on the door of over 6,500 voters already. 6,500? More than that. And so, this electorate? And this electorate, so yes. I think it's really important um, that, we're, that candidates are seen to be part of the community and hearing the points of view. Dr Campbell has worked as a cancer researcher, mainly overseas. Last election, he stood for Wigram. Hamish, how island are you? Well, I was born and bred here, so I, I'm through and through island. Uh, my wife, Carol, and I, we, after working overseas, decided to return to Ireland. So all the addresses I've ever lived in Christchurch have been in the island electorate. If people want to see the country change direction, if they want to see the country get on back on track, I think then they really need to do two ticks blue. Who's Lombard? Is that your one? The top camp, a party now averaging 1 to 2% in the polls, concedes that the only way into Parliament could be an island win. I'd say give your party vote to the party that you support and give your electorate vote to me. Locally, Raf Manji wants to put the brakes on medium density housing in the electorate. And then there are TOP's broader goals. Rebalancing the economy, um, investing in a fair tax system, investing in housing, investing in climate change. And I'm trying to build a party for the future. So you just come for a walk? My vote there, Sarah. <laughs> I thought I had it. I've worked really hard for these past three years um, and we've welcomed hundreds and hundreds of people into the office, helped hundreds and hundreds of people with many, many issues on all topics and from all situations. So I'm really hopeful that my record speaks for itself. In the meantime, Jerry Brownlee's been giving Dr Campbell some advice. So Jerry's advice was that it takes a lot of hard work. For this traditionally blue seat, there's a lot resting on his shoulders. I'm hoping it will come back to national, yes. How do you think you'll do, in honesty, in all honesty? Yeah, I think I'm going to win. And really hope that I've earned the trust of the people of Ireland to give me a second term. It's a fascinating contest, isn't it? That's Fena Owen with that report. Cool, Mutu, that's Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. We are off next week for King's Birthday weekend, so we will see you again in a fortnight. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.